0: look around you as we think about this awkward essential challenge of Christian community. Just take a minute and look around you. We got some weird folks here, don't we? And that's true. And so I'm going to talk about some of you weird folks for just a minute, and I'm going to talk about me because I'm a weird folk too, and you're going to find me in this list this morning. So as you looked around, we have some over-aggressive huggers who always bypass side-hugging, for the full-on hug we've got the under-aggressive people who shake your hand like a limp noodle we've got baby boomers who just aren't quite confident enough to give solid wisdom to millennials like myself and unfortunately I found out that I actually am a millennial still recovering from that we've got the know-it-all in life groups that Christ explains everything in a very condescending tone we've got the external processor who takes up your precious time by working out their meandering thoughts out loud. We have the person who manages to ask horrible, offensive questions as a prayer request. We've got the sweaty-handed people who lay their entire damp palm on your shoulder as they pray for you, or who you have to hold their hand as you pray with them. We have the overexpressive worshiper that makes you feel a little embarrassed, distracted, or maybe if we're honest, a little self-consciously stiff on our own parts. We have the person who frequently weeps during service, making you feel like an emotionless faux Christian, right? And that's just one of them that I fit in this category. We have the people who are fear of missing out that say that they'll be to the events, but then don't show up when the time comes. And we have the far too happy person with the perpetual smile that makes you sure that they are actually hiding something sinister underneath. We have the person who, <coughs> so, excuse me, we have the person who shakes hands with you twelve separate times, but still can't remember your name. We have the guy who thinks every discussion among men must include meat, beer, cigars, sports, or guns. Uh, we have the I'm not your typical Christian who goes out of the way to make sure that they're nonconformist showing you their tattoos. Or we have the super Bible scholar who shoots Bible verses faster than Wyatt Earp's quick draw. And you have your own list, right? And I'm sure I'm on this list. I know of at least one. But here's the thing about awkward... Christian community that is how we enjoy fellowship with one another it is what makes our fellowship beautiful the uncomfortable part of fellowship is what grows us it's what makes us who we are Scott Saul says joining your imperfect self to many other imperfect selves to form an imperfect community that through Jesus embarks on a journey toward a better future That's what this uncomfortable fellowship is all about. That's what the body of believers is all about. This is what we're going to talk about this morning. So if you would, please join with me in prayer. Our God in heaven, we thank you for people, your people. You have created us in your image. And you use each of us as living stones to build up your church. We thank you, therefore, for allowing us of the gift of being part of this body of believers, no matter how uncomfortable that fellowship might be at times. We pray that you would speak to our hearts and minister to us this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So the first point that I want to talk about with this as we talk about uncomfortable fellowship is this. His church is his people. Now you probably know that, but there's a lot of churches out there that maybe don't. There's a lot of Christians out there that maybe don't. Or maybe they know this and they take it too far. 1 Corinthians 12 The 12 through 12 says, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And then just a little while after that in 1 Corinthians, again in the same chapter, he says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And so the church is his people. Uh, The quote that I would read to you this morning is from Sam Alberry. He said, it is impossible to be in Christ and not belong to others. A Christian, by definition, has a connection with and a responsibility to other Christians. You cannot claim Christ and avoid his people as much as you might sometimes want to do. See, the church is his people. There's no I in church. When I was playing football, my coach would tell me that all the time, right? There's no I in team. He, yeah, that sounded like my coach would tell me there's no I in church. No, he would say there's no I in team, but the fact remains. And so, whether you, any team that you've ever seen football teams, basketball teams, hockey teams, soccer teams yes, even curling I know you know what that is if you've watched Olympics, right? There is no individual in a team. That's the whole point of it being a team. Church is a team. Now, your salvation is personal. So that is a me and Jesus relationship, absolutely. And so you're not saved by being part of a church. You're not saved as being a member of a church or any of those things. You're not saved by attending a church. And so that is a personal relationship. However, Scripture tells us and is very clear that when you become saved, when you are in Christ, you are then part of then what? his body to say that you love jesus and don't want anything to do with the church is in essence saying that you prefer a decapitated head scripture tells us in ephesians five twenty three: for the husband is the head of the wife even as christ is the head of the church his body and is himself its savior and for us to say and i've had friends who have said hey i love jesus but i don't like church well that's a problem The church is his body, and the church also is his bride. And I don't know about you, husbands, but if you talk smack about my woman, we're going to have a talk. I know that's really threatening from like a five, four little gnome. But whatever. You've also heard sayings that talk about when the tough get going, the going, or I'm sorry, (laughs) when the going gets tough, the tough get going. No, it's the opposite. We live in a society that heralds things like YOLO, which means you only live once. And so there's these you only live once people out there who have the fear of missing out, and so they always think that the grass is greener on the other side. If that wasn't true, then our divorce rates in this country wouldn't be as high as they are. And in fact, in the church, they're often no different than the world outside. And it's because we always have something else. Look at our Netflix cues with our algorithms that give you shopping information that's strictly for you, and if you don't like it, you can close the ad and move on. My kids don't remember what it's like to have to watch, you know, 20 minutes of ads so you could watch five minutes of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They're missing it. Perhaps you know the story of this Greek mythology. There was this man who was so beautiful that one day he saw his reflection in a pool of water, and so he stayed there until he died. This is the story of Narcissus. It's where we get the word narcissism from. This man sat at this pool so focused on himself that he eventually withered away and died. And that is consumer Christianity. That is Christianity. That's your relationship with Christ when you detach yourself from the local body of believers. So you guys are here this morning. That's great. Share this with somebody who's not. Share this with a family member who goes to another church in another place of the town who who maybe doesn't like that church or has problems with it. Have you ever seen one of those old stone-built cottages? Do you think that stone out in the the field there screamed out to the farmer? The farmer then came and took it and asked the stone, hey, where do you want to be placed in this house? And the stone would try this one spot in the house, decide that wasn't for him, and the farmer would then pull him out of the house and put them in another section of the house. No, this is foolishness. If you've ever seen one of those old stone cottages, you know they're absolutely beautiful. It took so much time and labor and work for people to get those stones out of the field, to prepare them, to then set them where they were. And it was by the farmer's plan that he would step back and see the the 50-foot view, as it were, to see where those stones would work and where they would line up best. And it was the mortar that every single one of those stones had in common. But it was those stones held together that made a habitation, a house for that farmer. And so instead of asking, how does this church fit me? What we ought to be asking is, what is God doing in my life to fit me for service in that church? Jesus is the cornerstone. We are being put together for him. This is what family is. You don't get to pick your family. And when it comes to church, that's uncomfortable because oftentimes we think we do. It's no different. We just sang a song about we're a child of God. We've been adopted into this family. He is the one who has put us together. He is the one who has called you here. Families share their stuff, or at least they should, or their parents should ground them, right? Families share their hurts together. Families cry together. But also families rejoice together. Families enjoy fellowship with one another. They go on vacation together. They are blessed together. See, church is more than just a nuclear family. This is where it gets uncomfortable. What this means is we need to get out of our comfort zones to allow for people to have fellowship with our congregation. I'm not saying that we're not doing that. What I am saying is what are you doing to facilitate that? For example, this means that maybe young married women welcome in the single woman who is struggling with same-sex attraction so that they can have genuine Plutonic friendship and meaningful relationships. Yes, even in the church. Is this not the scandal of the Samaritan woman with Jesus talking to her? Is this not the scandal of the woman who is caught in adultery? Is that not the scandal of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles? Is this not what Jesus says when he says, Who is my mother or my brother or my sister but these? You see, the church is his people. And if you're part of that people, then you're part of his church whether you like it or not and often in our consumer culture we ask ourselves does it have the programs that I want does it have the preaching that I want does it have the the music that I want and while some of those are good theological things that we need to ask there is no such thing as a perfect church just like in my list there's no such thing as a perfect person but his church is his people and that's what we're called to 1 Corinthians 6.11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and by the Spirit of God. So his church is his people. His people are difficult, and being a part of the body is going to be uncomfortable. But that brings me to the second part of this awkward thing called fellowship. His command is to love. john fifteen twelve through 13 says this this is my commandment that you love one another as i have loved you greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends i have a quote that i want to read to you from mr charles spurgeon pastor charles spurgeon i'm going to read a big part of it and then you can follow along with the smaller part that i have on the screen this is what it says this is what he says christ loved you before you loved him He loved you when there was nothing good in you. He loved you though you insulted him, though you despised him and rebelled against him. He has loved you right on and never ceased to love you. He has loved you in your backslidings and loved you out of them. He has loved you in your sins, in your wickedness, and in your folly. His loving heart was still eternally the same. And he shed his heart's blood to prove his love for you. He has given you what you want on earth and provided for you a habitation in heaven. Now, Christian, your religion claims from you that you should love as your master loved. How can you imitate him unless you love too? There's some things that our culture doesn't teach that I want to run through with you. The first and the second are this. Love isn't a feeling, it's a commitment. My sweet little girl, when we watch a movie, she's at the age now where she's starting to ask me, hey dad, is there any romance in this movie? And I love that. That gladdens my heart. But I also want her to know that Hollywood romance of fireworks and butterflies and kissing the frog to make him a prince isn't what love is all about. This may shock you. I've cleared it with her, it's okay. You can tell on me if you want, but she already knows. Elisa is not my soulmate. She does not complete me. Jesus is my soulmate. Jesus completes me. Alisa has to choose to love me. And I get to love her. You see, love isn't always a feeling. It's a commitment. We read things like uh, 1 Corinthians. At every single wedding. And yet we often neglect it. See, because the second thing is love doesn't serve itself. It serves others. That saying in 1 Corinthians is this. Love is patient and kind it does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, even uncomfortable, peop- uncomfortable people on Sunday morning or for that matter, in their life groups. See love isn't about you. That's so countercultural I want to say it again this morning. love isn't about you. That's part of the reason why the saying here at Allegheny Bible Church is love acts. Again, 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The second part of this about love is, is this. I guess this would be points three and four. Love isn't always nice. It pushes us towards holiness. We have this thought process in the world that the world has given us that that says that love equals tolerance, and that's simply not true. I love my kids absolutely dearly, but there are some behaviors I will not tolerate from them. Love is truth. Love isn't always nice. It pushes us towards holiness. Perhaps you've heard the song from Nazareth in 1976. Love hurts, love scars, love wounds and marks, and they had it right. Now The rest of the theology I have no idea about, but at least that part of their song they had right. But when we reduce love to tolerance, it ends up being a cultural and politically correct An anesthetized version of the gospel because we water things down so that people aren't offended because we have to make sure that we tolerate everything. That's what love is. But the Bible says that's not what love is. That love is mingled with truth. So compassion does not mean that we give up our convictions and holding firm to truth doesn't mean that we live without love. In fact, if you read scripture, 1 Corinthians is a scathing letter to those who are in Corinth. Paul unloads on them for all the things that they're doing wrong. And then in 2 Corinthians, this is what he says. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Because he knows what's best for them is following Christ. So yes, he loves you absolutely where you are and he's willing to meet you right in your sin. But the point of the cross is that you don't stay there. And then lastly, I guess that the love is, only, is not only for the lovable, but it's for our enemies too. This means those who have hurt you, who have offended you, who have wronged you. This means even for those who don't come to you and ask for forgiveness. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19, Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love doesn't wait for you to be deserving of it. Instead, it condescends to you. He loved you even while you were rebellious and against his rule. This is what I mean This is what our church means when we use statements like love acts. This is what you ought to mean when you say that, when you share that with other people. This means we are commanded to love in this way, even if we get nothing out of it. This means we love immigrants because they're in the image of God. This means praying for those who persecute you, whether they're from another socioeconomic, political, or other kind of party. This means serving and protecting the dignity of our neighbors regardless of race, gender, orientation, their religious, their political, or their socio-economic leanings. This means loving them because God has loved us and he has commanded us to be his hands and feet. And that's it. This means clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, ministering to the sick and the imprisoned. This is the kind of love that characterized the first century church. This is the kind of love that I hope that God is convicting us that we need to move back to. So yes, his command is to love. This kind of love is foreign and it is messy and it's uncomfortable. Here's the good news. This is exactly what you're empowered to do. So you can't tell me, Pastor, that's too hard for me because guess what? you if saved have the power of the Holy Spirit it is no longer you who lives but Christ who lives through you amen John fifteen five says I am the vine you are the branches whoever abides in me and I in him he it is who bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing and so you would be right to say this is too hard for me but it's not too hard for Christ because Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, and then here it goes, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth, meaning even to those filthy, filthy barbarian Gentiles, yes, even to those filthy barbarian Gentiles, and praise the Lord that they were. John Owen, one of my favorite authors who wrote this book, well, he wrote lots of books. You ought to read him. Uh, one of the ones that he wrote was Mortification of the Flesh. Uh, it's either that or mortification of sin. I can't remember exactly. You'll have to Google it. Um, John Owen. All the other ways of mortification are vain. All helps leave us helpless. It must be done by the Spirit, he says. We have to remember that this Holy Spirit is christ's spirit it is the spirit of god it is the spirit of power it is the same spirit that said let there be light and then there was light and that spirit through christ lives in you to empower you to love these awkward people and to love those awkward people church is his people those people are difficult being a part of the body is uncomfortable but we're commanded to love and this love is going to be foreign and it's going to be messy. It's going to be uncomfortable. I want you to embrace this Christian fellowship with me. Let's embrace not only this kind of fellowship, but let's embrace one another in this uncomfortable, messy body of Christ which ends up being such a beautiful mosaic to not only us. They will know we are Christians by our love by our love they will know we are christians by our love let's pray dearest lord jesus bring us past the point of accepting each other and the mess of this christian community bring us rather to the point of rejoicing in the differences of one another loving each other as christ loves us give us your holy spirit power help us to be the church that you deserve it's in your name we pray Amen.